0: This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival.
1: There's no reason in the you know technological landscape that we're in today to have a control processor in every room. You know, why not have one that drives everything? And if you're going to have one that drives everything, well, why does it have to be a $1,000? Software these days, you know, is scalability. If we have to rewrite the code and reinvent the wheel every single time, you don't get any of the benefits that you need to get out of it. It just becomes more or less a conventional system. The previous AV model, we designed a system for what's available today and some or all of what the customer asked for, and then we put that system in. Then we come back at the end when they don't want it anymore, and we do that exact same thing again. As engineers, as programmers, we're really good at making complexity, even though our whole job (laughs) is to eliminate it.
0: Welcome, my name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest on Software Defined Survival got his start in theater, lighting, and sound before moving on to be an AV technician, programmer, and engineer. He's also a member of the leadership committee for the Association for Quality and Audiovisual, or AQAV.org, where he also serves on the organization's steering committee, Uh, for the past several years. And if that wasn't enough, he's also designed and implemented the quality assurance practices that led to the first AV provider excellence program or APEX, the first certification of that from Avixa in the world. So please welcome Shane Springer. Shane, welcome. Good morning, Patrick. It's good to be here. How was that introduction? Is there anything you'd like to correct or expand upon?
1: Well, you know, the real problem with uh, looking at the LinkedIn of a true generalist is that it doesn't cover the time I was an arborist or my fun software development hobbyist work or any of that good stuff. But I, I think you got the bulk of it.
0: Excellent. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about your software endeavors, hobbyist or professional
1: or otherwise. Absolutely. So, and as you mentioned, I started uh, down a programming track uh, years ago in the traditional AV tracks. I started on AMX. I did follow that up with some Crestron work. And, you know, it's it funny for me because my father actually was uh, in IT. So I grew up in, you know, I still remember the, uh, the exaltation, seeing that uh, cow pattern box come in the house as we got our first uh, first computer, and what computer so to me, me I uh, it was a a gateway. The standard uh, I, I can't even tell you what it was at this point. I mean, I was probably six years old at that point. Yeah. Um, but you know that growing up in that IT, you know, kind of structure and going to work with my dad, you know, I'd seen a lot of these systems start to grow. You know, software became more important um you know he was uh, an administrator for uh, MOOCs or you know things like blackboard um so in those early days it was a lot of custom code it was a lot of you know new introductions to web services for people and that's kind of what i grew up in so when i came over to the av side it was you know like a time machine going back and seeing you know here we are in c i didn't know that people were still using c so that was uh kind of an interesting experience for me. It's like, you know, Fortran. Um, but, you know, that coming into that kind of software world gave me an early taste, I think, of wanting to do something different, you know, wanting to be a part of moving those things forward. So I've been one of the, you know, earlier folks in the industry that has been playing with the Raspberry Pi and really seeing, you know, where Java and REST and all that kind of fun stuff can factor in and finding as i know you have as well that you know in a lot of cases the equipment inside the industry beyond what i'm you know playing with is just not ready for those kind of communications so that's kind of been my my av software experience uh for the first you know several years of that career
0: nice i i I like the way that's come up a few times, like uh, having some kind of computer in the house as a child. Uh, that was my experience as well. We had an Apple IIc, and I remember banging mm-hmm. around with Basic. And uh, just the other day, I, I had to show my son Control-Alt-Delete, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> um, so Good. You
1: still have something to teach though, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So tell us a little bit about um, what you've been doing with the Raspberry Pi.
1: Um, a lot of what I find, you know, I, I kind of see in the industry that there, for a long time, there were kind of three segments, right, to how we do integration, there was the smaller kind of commodities based, you know, a lot in like education, 3570 of the same, simple, cheap room. Um, and then on um, the middle, you had the more complicated rooms, you know, little like amphitheaters and tiered classrooms and stuff like that and staying in that education model. And then you had big custom spaces, you know, auditoriums and stuff like that. Um, and what I've kind of noticed is that it seems like, you know, the waters are parting, as it were, and the, the middle of that spectrum is kind of starting to go away. And we're finding a lot more commodities-based stuff and a lot more, you know, high-end, extremely detailed custom. Um, so that was originally why I started playing with the pie was, you know, how can we take that lower end commodities and really make it a lot more efficient? You know, there's no reason in the, you know, technological landscape that we're in today to have a control processor in every room. You know, why not have one that drives everything? And if you're going to have one that drives everything, well, why does it have to be a thousand dollars? Couldn't a $50 machine do the same thing? then that was kind of what really drove me into experimenting more with the Raspberry Pi, you know, especially as displays more and more are able to be powered on. You know, it's relatively simple to give somebody a basic interface that lets them pick time of day and then put in your IP addresses of your displays and bam, they all turn on at the same time. They turn off at the same time, stuff like that. Um, so now we've been experimenting a little bit more with taking it that next step further and integrating into Calendar even. Um, so that they turn on when they're needed and turn off when they're not, which is not revolutionary per se. People have been doing that for, you know, a decade or more. Um, but being able to do that in a kind of more it friendly hardware form and a more it friendly software where they feel that they can modify that internally if they need to. Um, and in a way that gives them a little bit more visibility to security, um, both at the network layer and physically, uh, I think has been really kind of interesting as I started working with people for those types of systems.
0: So you mentioned security and I definitely want to circle back to that. So, um, please don't let me forget it, but yeah. in the introduction, I, I forgot to mention what company you're working for now. Tell us a little bit about where you're working is it an integrator and what are your responsibilities there? And then I'd like to know how the Raspberry ties into the business model of that company.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so the company I work for is One Workplace. Uh, they are a pretty behemoth company in uh, California that probably most people haven't heard of. Um, they're one of the largest steel case dealers on the West Coast. And that kind of presents its own interesting working format for me as i work inside of the integration firm that lives inside of that behemoth um our owners you know it's a family company so when they took the reins over and were looking at you know where the industry was going next where they traditionally had an office furnishings company they decided to diversify and A big part of that, uh, was fulfilling the needs of the rest of the commercial space, which was a large part of what they were serving at the time. Um, so they looked at the technology inside the conference rooms. Um, we also have a interesting construction division that does, you know, modular walls and stuff like that. Um, but because of my position inside of what for many intents is an interior design company, um, one workplace has been a fun challenge for me as a designer, uh, because I get a really good conduit to the folks that, you know, now we're really starting to talk about in, you know, a VIXA world of, you know, the folks that really drive aesthetic, you know, it's not just the architects anymore. In a lot of cases it's interior design firms or, you know, just commercial furnishing companies that are driving a lot of these design decisions. And that's given me an a good opportunity to design with design in mind. Um, You know, we use that term human-centered design. um, And One Workplace is a great example of that, especially in their furniture business, which, you know, has always been driven by, you know, user consultation and really interacting with everybody to make sure that they've captured what people are looking for as people instead of just as, you know, business returns. Um, so talking about what we're doing on the Raspberry Pi front, um, right now we're in kind of uh, a development phase on a couple of different, uh, smaller things, but a big thrust of what we're looking at it for is, you know, asset management, active monitoring, and, you know, having an ability to take a lot of our existing customers that, you know, may or may not have gotten installations from us in the past and still serve those customers daily as, you know, that service resource and that, you know, kind of constant contact, um, by going in and taking over other systems as well to do, you know, kind of that monitoring portion of it and make sure that whatever system they got stays healthy.
0: That's pretty interesting. I, Like the, the way that you talk, well, the position that you're in, right? So it was a furniture company. So maybe they don't have as much baggage of, uh, the way things are done in AV or the business model isn't already in place for selling equipment on margin, which gives you a lot of freedom as coming into this, uh, space with, with kind of new eyes and without the restraints of, of the past. And I also think it's interesting.
1: Absolutely true.
0: Okay. So I think it's also interesting that, um, that you're looking at existing systems, how you could breathe new life into them with asset management and, and system monitoring. And this is kind of maybe something that any integrator could kind of think about is, you know, how do we add more value? And I think um, things like collecting data and monitoring are great services or a great opportunity to do that can you talk a little bit more about how you're kind of executing on that about how you're rolling those kind of systems out or what are your plans on uh what technologies you're going to be using
1: for sure um you know it's kind of when we originally looked at it um i had this this voice in the back of my head uh and in my case the voice in the back of my head is named paul zealy and he works for harman um they were, he Always says, you know, there's a life cycle of the traditional AV room. It's about eight years. The first three, everybody loves it. The first and the next three, everybody's ambivalent. And the last two, everybody hates it. And then the integrator walks in. And, you know, that is kind of the impetus of, you know, let's let's change that model. Let's get in there before everyone hates it and actually get the opportunity to figure out, you know, what, what they like about it, what they don't. A big part of what a system like that looks like uh, to my mind is, you know, just basic data collection and being able to do that in such a way that it actually is applicable and, you know, human interpretable. Because you take an example like, you know, does the display turn on? That's easy. You know, that's simple binary function. But if you really want to know, do people use the display? that's not the same as power status so being able to more intelligently and contextually look at those kind of things where you can say you know i need to correlate not only is the display on but is the hdmi sensing sync and is it sensing sync for the you know entire duration without interruption because that may be a synthetic positive where somebody has their stuff plugged in and just leaves it so that's kind of more our focus as we move through this development phase is looking at you know how can we really provide not only the information but the context that enables better business decisions Um, and some of that has come from that data side and how do we you know correlate a b and c and a lot of it comes from you know the the qualitative side rather than the quantitative and really talking to the users in the space talking to the support staff you know i know i don't have to tell you there's nothing more valuable than the perspective of the guy that has to fix the room that is where you find every single problem in that room and uh probably some that aren't even an issue but he wants you to know about um so that that has really been helpful and i think you know for me kind of almost personally transformative to get the ability to really look at systems through such a personal human lens, um, to figure out what their solution is and, you know, kind of to reflect back to you asking about the, um, you know, how do we really implement that so far? It hasn't been super, um, super direct line, you know, super linear relationship with that. It's kind of been person by person, space by space. Okay. Um, and that is kind of, uh, a hurdle to overcome when you're looking at something like that that you know for a lot of people needs to be very scalable uh you know obviously that's the big point of software these days you know is scalability if we have to rewrite the code and reinvent the wheel every single time you you don't get any of the benefits that you need to get out of it it just becomes more or less a conventional system so that's something that we're really actively working on now we've got a few uh you know smaller demos and pilots in place uh to see how to really address that scalability without losing the human touch. Um, And I'll let you know how they go.
0: Excellent. I I like the way you pointed that out, but um, I think it's important to note that you are getting started, right? You're not letting that fear of scaling hold you back, which I think wow. is, is an important thing to uh, keep an eye on, right? There, there's nothing wrong with making custom applications to serve a particular client's needs. but mm-hmm. And as long as during that progression, you, you're keeping your eye on what tools you're using, what could be repackaged, what could be made to be a, a reusable um, modular type of a, a tool and still provide that custom experience for the end user. I think that's... That's the challenge, but it's also the opportunity where where you kind of set yourself apart. Instead of saying we use asset management tool from uh, manufacturer X, you're saying we're going to use our known tools to provide something customized for your needs. And um, the other thing I took away from that was you mentioned this AV system lifecycle and talking to the techs and they'll give you the answers that kind of reminded me of agile software development where Mm -hmm. you're kind of constantly upgrading systems based on user feedback. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, really any process and, you know, you mentioned my, you know, involvement in AQAV, um, which is ultimately, you know, process look at, you know, PMP, look at a design process, look at, you know, agile software development. They all are a circle. And that's extremely important, mm-hmm. you know. Even you know, flashing back to uh, the design days, uh, you know, and Don Nelson, the uh, you know father of human-centered design. Even his process is completely circular because ultimately, if you know what you do in you know what I consider to have been the previous AV model, we design a system for what's available today, and some or all of what the customer asked for, and then we put that system in. Then we come back at the end when they don't want it anymore, and we <laughs> do that exact same thing again. Yeah. But it is a different room because the industry has changed, but we in no way had you know a hand in that. We were just kind of responding to whatever the environment was and giving you something that matched the environment. Whereas today, I think the model has shifted both at a customer level and what's expected, but also you know, very slowly at an integrator level of how we really interface with those kind of processes and you know, collecting information and feedback you know, in the end of the cycle that we talked about where everyone hates it is a very different experience and ultimately somewhat less helpful than collecting a lot of that same data midstream. You know, what are the things that bother me, but I'm still happy with the system? You know, that's an important difference between the system doesn't work I never liked it. Why did we get this? And hey, this is something we could improve on the next one. You know, maybe it's not a difference from the development portion, but it is from the sales development portion because you're getting a lot of that stuff caught much quicker. Um, But ultimately, I think that that kind of process minded thinking as you, you know, highlighted it where everything really feeds back into developing a better product is ultimately a real boon to the integrator um i know i just listened to uh the last episode of software defined survival with uh, (laughs) a fantastic guest patrick murray Uh and one of the things you mentioned was you know sometimes people are receptive to the system and it's going to work and they can do it and sometimes people just aren't and that you know is a reality that i see as well that you can lead a horse to water but you can drown a lot of horses before you figure out they're not going to drink. And that, you know, is important as an integrator to take that breath. When somebody brings you a new idea, look at it and say, Hey, how is this really poised to help me? Because in the case of that kind of constant feedback cycle, not only does it improve your your relationship with the, with the customer and improve your, you know, whole business with that customer, but you take those same lessons to every customer you touch after that. You know all all integrators, I would hope, are relatively cumulative to the experience they have with everyone and take successes and failures to the next one as you know opportunities to learn. So the more feedback you get, the more you learn.
0: Sure, it becomes part of your experience, and uh, mm-hmm. that's really what we bring to the table more than anything else is is knowing what works, what doesn't, and in what situations certain things. Um, kind of survive, and uh, <laughs> thanks for mentioning that podcast I was on. It was a <laughs> lot of fun talking to uh, Steve Greenblatt about you know my my journey, and I think what you mentioned there a great example of that is different types of people need a different kind of interface, and mm-hmm. we've always had a touch panel, but. Over the last few years, we've seen a lot of uh, products that have sync detection and they don't even need control anymore because the automation is mm-hmm. kind of built into the product. So there's sync detection Absolutely. and you can do the same thing with a uh, a motion detector. Uh, but I think the best example of this is, is voice control. So mm-hmm. if you put voice control more in a residential setting, perhaps, but it may move into commercial settings, remains to be seen. But if you put a touch panel and voice control in a home, I bet the different people that live in that home will gravitate more towards one or the other. And you'll see different usage. And the outcome will be the same, right? The light will go on or off, the music will come on Mm -hmm. or off, but the interface is different and the way it's controlled from that user is different. And I expect to see more interfaces or more different kinds of interfaces in AV moving on.
1: Yeah, I think in many ways it's important to kind of take into consideration just the different tasks that are relevant in a space, you know, in an area like a home, there are hundreds of different things you can do. Whereas in, you know, a smaller commercial space, you know, as medium meeting room, you might only have six or seven different things you can do. And so ultimately it comes back to focus on that user experience and the complexity as engineers, as programmers, we're really good at making complexity even though our whole job (laughs) is to eliminate it. That's a constant, you know, internal battle. Um, But when we look at things like, you know, you mentioned pairing two different systems, I think that that is very relevant and becomes more relevant as we go forward because something like turn the volume up, that to me, you know, might be easier as a button push. But something like connect to my conference with Beijing, that might be a voice command. You know, it's all about, providing multiple access roads and letting people find their path, the least resistance. And, you know, obviously that can be hard to do at scale. Um, but I think that, you know, you touched on a really good point about just taking that user into account and having people that work in different ways, be able to work in different ways. And that's definitely, I think a trend kind of in the commercial and business world today, but it hasn't trickled down to the, the AV systems as much yet.
0: Yeah. Right. Because when you're in residential, you have a home, you know exactly who the users are. But in an organization, you may get an idea for the culture of generally who is working there, but it's still almost like a public space. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why. Half of me believes that voice does have a future in commercial because you have these different types of people. And once they get voice control, I think there'll be a segment of people who will never want to give it up. And the other reason is it'll be easier to implement because like you said, there's just less functions. I did a yeah. residential job with almost all voice control and we have to print out lists of all the functions that he has so that he could remember what to say. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, he has 50 lighting circuits. But in a conference room, you're just gonna have start the meeting, stop the meeting, and uh, maybe a handful of other commands that you use every day. So I even think implementation will will be easier there. but. That all remains to be seen how that's going to play out.
1: I think it also, you know, bears saying that when you get systems like uh, voice recognition that rely heavily upon machine learning, or you know, the all mythical AI um, that a lot of the things that comes in in commercial that maybe doesn't as does much in residential is. Just intellectual property, you know, business to business, do we want a shared pool somewhere in the cloud that has a record of what our people are saying? You know, that security, again, comes up and is very, very relevant, you know, more so with voice and more so in the commercial space as we start to see, you know, I think it was an example I heard on this show, not to keep name dropping you. um, But, you know, when somebody says, start my meeting and the thing says back, oh, you mean you're firing everybody meeting? That kind of information is extremely sensitive. So when you end up even the other way, when you say, you know, John in development says, Hey, start my meeting about our new 12 inch iPhone. That is something that you can't have scraped out of the internet at any point. So how you manage all that data, where it goes, things like that become extremely key. So having companies that are very attentive to that, where, you know, Our major control systems now do support those kind of voice functions on the panel, but where the data goes after that and as it interfaces more and more with cloud-based machine learning systems, how are you managing making sure that, you know, the same cloud that gives you your TV turning on easily doesn't also compromise, you know, your securities in a variety of different ways.
0: Definitely. Um, This kind of comes back to that experience um, thing that we were talking about because as more things get integrated, we're integrating the calendar. Well, then it's our job to make people aware, you know, everything you write in that calendar may be read back over a speaker. And Mm -hmm. uh, those are just um, some of the things that, you know, that, that we as consultants, when you're consulting with somebody that need to be pointed out and some users will be more comfortable with it. Than others, no, so you, unexpected you, caveats of the evolving workplace. Exactly, and there's always pros and cons that need to be looked at. So you mentioned uh, AQAV. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because not all systems have the highest quality. So <laughs> what's the mission to. there? Yeah, <laughs> what's the mission there, and uh, what do you think really is the motivation for anybody in AV to deliver high quality?
1: So, AQAV is, you know, a great organization. The big focus is on, you know, standards-based, um, you know, ISO 9000 style conformance to performance metrics and how we do the process of AV. Um, you know, one example of that is that AQAV is looking for a prefabrication, a staging checklist, which not everybody today even does that part of the process. You know, like I come across a ton of people that field build everything. And I can talk to am Blue in the face about, you know, one in the shop, three in the field, and all the other things that we say that, you know, let people know that that is probably not the most efficient way to do things. But until you have to change, not a lot of people are going to. So Mm -hmm. that... Is a big part of that AQAV process is saying, you know, if this is what you're looking for and you are coming in to say, we are in compliance, we are doing the best we can to give you the best possible system, then adding something like that to your process is key. Um, it also then follows through with just kind of basic performance metrics and testing, you know, directives. All of that is you know, integrator influenced, or in some cases customer consultant driven, but, you know, establishing early on what you want a system to do so that you can know at the end that you did it. You know, there's an old, uh, an old kind of AV guy, you know, a guy that goes around in his truck delivering random sound systems that you turn it on, you turn it up and you say, yeah, that's probably what I wanted to do. That's good. Well, let's go. But, you know, there's a big difference between that And the ability to enter a space that you've properly surveyed, that you have planned accordingly. And then at the end of that measuring and saying, yes, what I put in here is not only exactly what you needed because I did that engineering effort correctly on the front end, but it's what you wanted because I did the discovery effort before that. So that kind of is the, the big impetus in AQAV is ultimately just trying to really kind of track and provide a more linear process flow to what people are doing to get quality results. And I think that to answer your other question, you know, where, where quality is really important and that quality assurance, I think that's still something that is really missing in the industry as a whole. Uh, there are a lot of people that do a fantastic job and I, you know, encounter incredible people that probably even do a better job than I do and I'm on the board. So, um, <laughs> but you know, when you see the widespread, I think a lot of people are still doing the bare minimum. They're doing what they can get away with. And so a big, uh, thrust of really all standards reformation work inside of this industry has ended up at the consultant doorstep. And at the user's doorstep, you know, the people that have to ask for it specifically. Um, yeah. But it has been nice in the last you know, year or maybe even more that we really started to see an uptick in the number of integrators that are recognizing that and saying, you know, I'm going to get ahead of this. I'm going to be compliant before I have to be. And I'm going to really take the time to understand how that improves my business. Why do you think that is?
0: What do you think the Um, reason for the uptick is?
1: I think ultimately it's more exposure. Um, I think that it's been difficult to really get in front of the integrators specifically in a way that really helps them understand the value. And a lot of that is because they're working. Yeah. (laughs) When you, all the integrators that I know are pulling 14 hour days pretty regularly. So getting any kind of, you know, proactive education in front of them is very difficult, you know, even great indicate great integrators that are doing, you know, everything they can for their customer may not also be aware that there are these kind of standards that they can lean on as well. Um, so education has been a really big part of that building awareness, coming on here and talking to you, stuff like that. Um, so I think that that started to change very positively and I hope that trend continues.
0: Cool. So let's play a little game. You are, we'll imagine that you are, I don't know, some kind of freelance consultant, engineer, integrator, whatever. And I'm one of those integrators that doesn't do a great job. I'm working 14 hours a day. I have my excuses. There's not enough time. There's not enough margin. There's not enough this Mm -hmm. or that. Um, What do you say to me? How do you try to help me do
1: the right thing? Sure. I mean, one of the easiest ways to get through to somebody is generally talking about dead display because that is a great example that everybody has experienced you don't do shop build you take it out into the field in the box you put it up you spent you know all day in this room getting up a 90 inch display or some massive you know 250 pound touch behemoth put it up plug it in hit the button and you just get a big green lightning bolt. In that moment, the benefit of taking it out of the box, plugging it in and hitting the power button in your shop where you could have put it back on the truck and it took five minutes to test, you're going to spend the next two hours taking that display back down and reboxing it, thinking about that five minutes you missed. So that is kind of usually the place that I start because nobody has uh, gone their whole career without getting a massively defective display out of a box. And that really helps people identify usually.
0: It's something I try to preach all the time, but the conversation is often difficult because you need to buy the equipment earlier. That's that's the first one that I always get. Is Absolutely. Why, why can't we just drop ship everything to the job site? Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer is, well, then you, you become Amazon, right? <laughs> Amazon kind yeah. of.
1: It's hard, you know, having the space to put, you know, your 1590s yeah. for a project, things like that. You know, there are definitely costs associated with getting that ability to execute on the front end. Um, but, you know, I've worked for three different companies now that have implemented, you know, AQAV specifically and seen dramatic savings on the end. You know, that's where you end up. You have, you know, the mythical zero punch list project, stuff like that can actually occur when you really do your front end work yeah. and you end up ahead financially.
0: Yeah, definitely. The, the zero punch list uh, projects, I've uh, experienced it as well once or twice. And it's always because things <laughs> were defined extremely um, to a T, 100% upfront, and checklists were made, and everything can just kind of fall into place. And uh, if you're used to having a hard time closing projects, uh, getting having a uh, sign off taking a long time because things just are just there's open items all over the place. I think that's, um, that's really one of the main factors for just doing the work up front. So, uh, aqav.org to get more information about how to do a better
1: job. So tell me about AV Cheat Sheet. I am glad you asked. AV Cheat Sheet is, uh, it's a pretty new project for me. Um, I know that there are some fantastic AV podcasts out there in the world, but, uh, you know, I thought you could use one more. We drive a lot, so there's always more time. Um, and really the, the point of AV Cheat Sheet uh, is truly accessible, simple information. I know when I started and when I talked to people that have recently started in the industry, there are a lot of really big concepts out there. You know, how do you do your PagNag? nag? How do you do acoustics in a conference room? You know, I don't understand what these panels are doing and why they're here, things like that, that seem really daunting and then you get five years into your career and you look back and you're like that that was really easy why didn't somebody just explain it to me and that is the the real point of av cheat sheet is just kind of being your your industry friend that is going to give you the lowdown so that you can walk in feeling prepared and confident when you have to talk about different subjects uh pretty new project we just have one episode up as of now um decided to take a big bite to start and <laughs> talk about, uh, kind of women in the, the industry. Um, uh, but our, our next episode here, a little, uh, easier to consume, definitely, uh, talking about basic conference room acoustics and kind of how to navigate acoustics needs inside of a project. Cause that is definitely something I think a lot of people neglect, um, either just trying to keep the budget down or, because they don't know enough about it. So I'm trying to hit the second group of people and just make sure that nobody is skipping it because they don't have the education.
0: Excellent, so it comes back to education again. And uh, that's something Everything I- always does. Yeah, I truly believe in, and I wish you all the best with that. We've Thanks. covered a bunch of topics today from from using alternative control and automation processors, commodity hardware, such as the Raspberry Pi. We talked about uh, improving quality and, and, uh, using processes to do that. And you talked a bit about, you know, some, some, some basic AV, uh, knowledge like, um, acoustics and things like that. What would you say to somebody where, where do you think somebody should get started if they're looking to, yeah, just expand their horizon a little bit? Where do you think you would get the most bang for your buck?
1: that is a great and complicated question <laughs> um i think that it really depends what you're trying to do if what you want is a really kind of generalized overview of what the technologies are available um then you know something like the uh, extra navy associate program i know it was very helpful for me when i started um but if you want you know more specifically to look at you know, say programming, you know, I know that Patrick, you've got a ton of great classes related to that on your website as well. Thank um, you. There are not a ton of AV directed podcasts otherwise that I'm aware of, or maybe directed learning websites for programming. Um, but obviously every manufacturer has programs available for you to learn whatever their cut and color is. Um, and just kind of looking for community ultimately, because there are a lot of things even, you know, Facebook groups and stuff like that, that are really surprisingly supportive of new people starting out that have questions and just kind of want to get a feel for things. So I think that between kind of those three different directions, everybody should be able to find a foothold and get started.
0: Excellent. I appreciate that. And uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that?
1: Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way I try to stay as on top of that as possible and you can read through my hilarious work history as well um, and other than that uh, at AV cheat sheet AV cheat sheet at gmail if they want to get in touch with the podcast we're always looking for feedback uh, you know guests, stuff like that so and uh, you know don't forget to tell everybody that we're gonna have you on Patrick
0: <laughs> excellent thank you very much
1: Shane <laughs> been a pleasure
0: If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages, and it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, All other languages become easier to learn, and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either-or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of IdeaBox, had to say about his experience with the online
2: courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, Before I took the LearnAVProgramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or or things like that, for some reason I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other one percent, and that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset, uh, which is more important and 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 really show them new opportunities open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again.
0: Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please
1: subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.